And Biden, like, I could see being like a guy that wears like the wraparound glasses and like takes like a, a selfie video like in a car while like driving, like talking about you know <laughs> how he wishes cars were longer like they were back in the day. <laughs> I'm really not doing great. I no. mean, this has not been. Uh, this ain't it, Chief. Because you can have you can have symptoms not of coronavirus, but of like cabin fever and getting stuck in a, a house, wondering what uh, country you're going to see when you step out of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't at all have any cabin fever. I'm immune to cabin fever because I'm a recluse, but I do have a lot. Like, I do have really powerful anxiety about um, how this is playing out in the world. And yeah, I, so like anxiety manifests really physically for me. So like uh, shortness of breath and chest pain is something that I get really bad when I'm anxious. And those are symptoms of <laughs> coronavirus, which I know that like, there's no realistic chance that I have. The only place I've really been is the grocery store. But yeah, it's, I don't know. It's e e like, it's just very, I feel very physically uncomfortable and like, I can't really focus on anything. I keep like opening Twitter and then being like, this is fucking depressing. I'm going to get out of here. And then 15 minutes later, I'm like, wonder what's on Twitter. So that's been pretty much my life the last, I don't know, since Super Tuesday, I guess. <laughs> yeah, very relatable. Um, I've been doing some hashtag self-care by uh, taking a Twitter break for the last week, uh, with the exception of a few check-ins and this morning just to see what I was missing out on the dish discourse uh tm um but yeah uh i think that we're all gonna have to figure out how to process all of this um uh, you know anxiety inducing situation individually because you know we're all snowflakes and it's going to take different work to make sure that we're all you know taking care of each other and ourselves yeah yeah i've, I've been uh funneling all of my anxious energy into uh making things Fuck yeah. Like, like bread. I made a bunch of bread. Keep doing that. I'm probably going to stream it again, as that was fun. Nice. Um, uh, although I, I need to find something that's a little bit more active than bread, because yeah. there's like four <laughs> hours of, there's like, like a half hour of, of, of rising that is not uh, exactly riveting entertainment. You should do yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, bread making is not the best streaming. Yeah, content. but yeah, but maybe, maybe, <laughs> pa maybe pasta or something like Pas that. David, pasta rests for half, half an, an hour. hour yeah, and but it takes like three minutes to cook. Yeah, but then, then like before that, you know, like the the uh, the mixing and then like laminating and pressing, like yeah, all, that's all, that, true. all that stuff can can happen. But uh, and then uh, I've been starting to work on garden stuff. Chris, you helped me uh, pick up a bunch of stuff from Home Depot. Yep, yep. You know, we, we uh, I ordered it through the website first, and then you know they had it all ready, so we spent as little time as possible in the store. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I built like a, a wall, practically like an insulated wall, and then I built onto the wall like a table, a work table and a shelf, and you know, so starting some seedlings and trying to make a garden. It's not a victory. What's the opposite of a victory garden? Because we're not like winning anything. Defeat garden. Yeah, <laughs> okay. defeat garden. Yeah, yeah, this is my defeat garden. It's my what? fall of the empire garden. <laughs> yeah, uh, the the seeds of a of a promising future. Yeah, maybe. Uh, so, so yeah, you know, it, it, this is not the apocalypse we wanted, but it's perhaps the apocalypse we deserve. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the apocalypse for 
most of the last, you know, 15 years or so. And I always expected that we would be in the streets figuring out how to build a new world together instead of hiding in our homes or otherwise having to go to work and make the widgets in an even more alienating and isolating and lonely existence. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. This is going to be for the long haul. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to, to be as optimistic as possible about um, the trajectory that this could take uh, in terms of, you know, people building mutual aid networks and taking care of one another. But there's a lot of evidence to suggest it's going to be a rough ride. So another thing that I'm making along with physical things and, and food and stuff is I made a Discord. I haven't used Discord in a long time. Uh, I, I played it, played with it a little bit. I think when Beep Beep Lettuce made, made, uh, made a Discord, I was hanging out in there for a while. And then I, I kind of fell out of it and I kept back into it. And I, I decided to make one called a Posters Union Local 420. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, you know, it's like you got like a channel for like, you know, posting pictures of your pets and stuff like that. So, if, you know, if, if anyone else wants to get into it, you know, it's just another thing to like pass the time and meet people and talk, uh, talk out whether it's the news or just like funny memes or whatever, you know, uh, DM us on the Ironweeds Twitter and we'll send yeah, you a link to it. Yeah, or shoot us an email. Yeah, we'll send you a link to it. If you're Hell cool. Yeah. Only, if you're, only if you're cool. We, there's a pretty strict <laughs> vetting process. So yeah. <laughs> you have to have at least shit posted about Biden being missing uh, <laughs> a minimum of two times <clears throat> on either Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. Do you we guys will think, ask for proof of those posts. Do you guys think he's dead? I don't know. I don't think he's dead, but I think he's not well. Yeah. Um, I think if he was dead, they would have they would have had to announce that like pretty much immediately. Otherwise, I think there would just be a total shitstorm. But I definitely do think it's probable that I think I think that before the last debate, they just like pumped him full of some kind of elixir. That like <laughs> so, based on my knowledge from role playing games, like. If you're going to take a potion that increases some stat for Vitality a plus particular five. period of time, yeah, like there's going to be oftentimes those have like, you know, detrimental like recovery effects. And so my guess is that they pumped him full of some kind of brain boosting serum. And now he has to like sleep for three days to recover from that. The the nootropic stack really takes a toll on you. You know, he's he's, he's full of paracetam and vitamin D. He's got and, that paracetam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, yeah there's a cool I, down I, on the adrenaline shot. And like, right. given his, you know, he did this like media call with journalists, and you know, David was pointing out earlier that there's barely even a complete sentence that's quotable in all of the releases that have come out about it. And so I just think what's very likely is that he is incapable of forming like complete coherent sentences and they're not giving him any face time for that reason. Yeah, I mean, really, like the the, the whole article has like I, I think there's one sentence that it's like Trump isn't doing a job. He's got to do his job. <laughs> so that's like the only full sentence that has like a subject and predicate and everything else is uh, the Biden team said, quote, there has to be more work done, unquote, and that, quote, no one likes a dullard, unquote, or something like that. You know, it's just like completely disconnected stuff that they're obviously cutting out Biden going on a tangent about his favorite candy. 
I'm just surprised Sanders is with Trump, is all. I'm just surprised Sanders is, is, is with uh, Trump. Surprise him, is all. I just, you know, I don't want to look at, listen, Jack, if, if, it's, if it's not me, if it's us, then, like, everyone gets in the pool at the same time. You don't. You don't see pretty ladies in their new swimsuits, and the and then the the the, the you got to go in and you get change all the water, and then the chlorine. It's that's that's our democracy. So and, who, and, and Trump, he's he's peeing in the pool, folks. He's <laughs> Trump's Trump's got the wee wee sea ring right around him. I'm, I'm gonna drum him like a beat. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's amazing to see, like, all these libs, especially a bunch of Warren stands, like, coming out of the woodwork to, like, essentially defend Biden and say that, like, it's inappropriate or conspiratorial or, like, Russian bot behavior to point out the fact that, like, Mushbrain Joe is MIA during a fucking global pandemic crisis. It's just, it's just so, it's so fucking bizarre. Like, <laughs> we are just, the liberal left is so incapable of we were talking about this the other day like picking sides and defining enemies and i think that's a big part of the my frustrations with liberalism is that like there are actors in this world whose behavior has very material detrimental effects and we have to start naming them as enemies and developing strategies for fighting them and liberals just cannot fucking do it they well, like and I, I think we've talked about before how, like, you, sometimes you need to not know a thing in order to do your job or, like, play some role. And I really think, like, it is imperative that liberals not understand or know that political enemies exist, that, like, you can actually have an enemy that is not persuadable. You just have to defeat them. Like, they just refuse to learn that lesson. And so you just get people who, are, who feel more comforted by saying, no, it's totally normal for the, de the presumptive Democratic candidate to just go MIA for 72 hours during a global pandemic. Or That's totally fine and normal. That's being presidential, in fact. Or even say that he's going to uh, veto Medicare for all during a pandemic. Like if it somehow materializes in Congress or the Senate, he's like, yeah, yeah, j just so there's no confusion. I'm a veto that shit. And uh, Warren's well, like, I mean, hmm, I think I want in on this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think that's not like exactly what he said. And I wonder if that if him saying that he would, quote, veto Medicare for all, which is not is not really exactly what he said. I wonder if that's like our best strategy right now for for going on the attack against him. I don't know. I mean, that may just be like a, a like nitpicking too much and we should just go after him for everything that we can. But so, so um, I, what I, he said was that yeah, he was he not. He said he would not sign into law uh, a health care bill that would suspend people's coverage for any amount of time, um, which it substantively is mostly the same. Like, it's vague enough that it could mean he would just veto any kind of sweeping health care reform, because even if it takes a week for people to switch over from their current insurance to Medicare for all like that, I guess, would fit those uh, parameters. But if if I'm remembering correctly, and I, I didn't I didn't brush up on this before we started recording, but if, if I remember correctly, it was something to that extent that he said he wouldn't. And I think it was also that if it maybe raised taxes on the middle class, that might have been it as well. Either way, like it's it's not a full throated endorsement and therefore it's it's unacceptable. Absolutely. Yes, that's <laughs> you know, it's it's weird that there's just like a sort of accepted expectation that Biden's not even going to be the nominee, but like 
somebody who represents the interests of the ruling class like will <laughs> like but there's two yeah, people left absolutely. in the race really uh or is tulsi still in i think she might be still in. no, no she, dropped, she out. dropped out and endorsed biden oh yeah. shit i did not expect yeah. that um yeah i don't wh- think a lot of us didn't yeah well uh yeah so in a two-person race and one of them is completely mia there's an expectation that Biden's not going to make it through this election season and that the DNC is just going to install some, you know, wild card. <laughs> I've heard everything from uh, Hillary Clinton to now there's like this uh, big push to nominate Andrew Cuomo for some fucking reason. Cuomo for president yeah. was, was <laughs> trending yesterday. I even saw like Amy Klobuchar or something. Oh, my God. Um, the K-Hive is going to descend on Milwaukee or whatever Zoom meeting replaces it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and 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 like and just like kamikaze themselves into <laughs> the, the 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 meeting and and make a uh, Kamala the nominee. He's like th- those people are ride or die. Yeah, it's it's just it's it's so crazy. Uh, you know, everyone's mask on now because you know we're practicing <laughs> social distancing. Uh, Masks back on. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like it's never been more clear that the Democratic Party is here for one reason and one reason only, and that is to serve the interests of the ruling class, which means denying working people any type of political say in policy. And uh, even though, you know, there's a high likelihood that uh, Biden won't be the nominee because he's going to not be capable for the job, they will not go with the second most popular candidate because their job is to keep working people from getting material gains. And um, yeah, so with that said, I say, let it burn, let it burn, let it burn, let it burn. And hopefully uh, the Democratic Party, if they do manage to uh, not allow working people uh, the policy agenda that they want, just burns to the ground and a workers party rises from the ashes. Yeah, I think that's the best best case scenario. And, you know, it might be instructive to maybe we could do an episode about this in the future um, because I'm not fully prepared to talk about it in any depth right now. But looking at the fall of the Whig party and, you know, the rise of, well, various parties that came in to take its place, but particularly how it strengthened the Democrat and Republican parties in in new and interesting ways might be somewhat informative for us looking forward. Like, so what, because it's been, it hasn't been in any of our lifetimes that new political, either old political parties failed or new political parties rose to power. So I actually feel a bit, if I feel hopeful about anything right now, it's that I feel hopeful that this may be the demise of the Democratic Party and maybe within the next few decades, I don't think it'll happen particularly quickly, but maybe over the next couple of decades, we'll see the rise of an actual workers party. You know, first past the post is going to make that incredibly challenging for us in ways that it it really wasn't prior to full voting enfranchisement, I think, because we just now have such a, a, I don't, that can kind of sound like I don't think everybody should vote. That's not what I mean. But now that we have such a huge, diverse voting base, especially full of a lot of low information voters, as we're seeing with the rise of Biden, I think that, that that will be a challenge that hopefully we can, you know, we can rise to meet. Well, so as it relates to the whole Biden phenomena, it's pretty insane that in Florida and the other two states, right, that did have their primaries last week uh, in the middle Illinois of pan- Arizona. Yeah, Illinois and Arizona, in the middle of a pandemic, the only people who showed up to the polls in large numbers were people who really, really are vulnerable to the coronavirus. 
which is fucking insane. That means that like these people care more about denying working people like broad sweeping a legislation that actually helps them than their own survival. So I actually I don't think that most people who are voting for Biden are voting against Bernie. This may no. be like a hot take that's not super popular, but I, I don't it think that be. they're voting for Biden because they ha- hate him so much. I think that there a lot of people are, but I don't think that's I think the majority of them are voting for Biden because they truly believe that Sanders cannot beat Trump and Biden can. And that's why I think the low information voter element of it is really important. And Bernie himself has said this, that like they're winning the election of ideas, but they're losing the electability argument. And I actually think that that's spot on because people just hear socialist can't beat Trump. Um, young people, they don't vote, can't beat Trump. So, yeah. And, and Biden winning in these historically red states is really appealing to a lot of people, which is so stupid because winning a red state in a primary doesn't get you no anything. Way translates <laughs> to winning a red state. Yeah, in it doesn't prove anything. But so yeah, I think that that's. I think that that electability yeah. argument is is m- much more central to why he's doing so well. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, like the fact that so many people like Medicare for all polls so well, and then they vote for Biden. Like states that have like a, a strong majority supporting Medicare for all, and like other policies that Bernie has either brought to the forefront or been the leader of since the beginning like they they support those things but then that state also goes heavily for joe biden it shows that like they think that these are just democratic ideas but then they're never going to get them well and i think even more so than that and if you look at these exit polls one of the questions they always ask people leaving the polls is what's more important to you a candidate who believes the same things as you or who can beat trump and consistently, one of the few things that has remained and there are two things that have remained consistent across every single exit poll in every single election that we've had so far is, mm-hmm. do you support, you know, massive uh, reforms to health care? Yes. In large numbers, people do 60, 70 percent. Mm-hmm. And do, what matters more to you, somebody who believes the same things as you or somebody who can defeat Trump? And it's Trump every single time. It is in massive numbers. People want somebody who can beat Trump. And. Maybe what one of the exit polls should be is what's more important to you, healthcare reform or beating Trump? I think that, you know, given that given Biden's success, I think the latter would be the case. So mm. Mm. <sighs> and most people don't have like the disease politics brain that we do, where we're like looking at all of these different polls and all these and like waiting for Joe Biden to say literally anything uh, and not seeing it. And not seeing a winning strategy there. And so they think Biden is the one that's going to win because we've been so conditioned for so long to believe that what you actually want and then what the uh, election process can give you are very different. Right. Yeah. You like What is the the motto of the Democratic Party? If not, you can't get what you want. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like, the, the important, meaningful legislation is always beyond reach. That is every single Democrat's argument like even in their wildest fantasies democrats lose or they or or they uh, uh negotiate away the important parts like they they just love bipartisanship they don't love like actually winning anything like what was that thing i i forgot who it was i think it was in the midterms or something that they said um their big goal might have been Buttigieg's idea was like his idea for the supreme court would be like republicans and democrats like voting in equal portions of, of the justices and then like they would negotiate for a, a chief justice or something it was it was like something was like no like you're you're you don't want 
a nonpartisan process. You want your guy to win. Come on, like win. Yeah, the court system is the legacy of the executive. That is like one of the one of the strongest and and most important elements of the executive is creating a legacy of the courts. And for better or for worse, whatever you think of that, if Democrats are the only ones willing to negotiate that part of the of executive power away, then we're going to end up with conservative courts for until the fall of the republic, which will, I imagine, be any day now. Yeah. <laughs> this whole crisis, just like, you know, as so many crises do, illuminates the the fault lines and the weak, the weak spots of, you know, our democracy and our economic system really well. And it's incredible to watch Dems being outflanked on progressive policies by Republicans. It is a fucking sight to behold. It's like the trend that progressives and leftists have been remarking on for years and years now that, you know, Democrats are just constantly uh, folding before the fight even begins. And I, I just finished this long essay short book by Nancy Fraser called The the Old is Dying and the New Cannot Be Born, which I think is a Gramsci quote. But um, She's talking about this. She basically develops like a kind of new political matrix, which don't we all need another one of those? But it is <laughs> it is, I think, a, a particularly instructive one given this moment. And she talks about a lot of her work is on the notion of recognition, which I think I think she's using recognition maybe in the Hegelian sense. Either way, it doesn't really matter. Rec- recognition for her is when um, marginalized groups sort of get included in the conversation and that takes the form of sort of neoliberal policies, more black women CEOs, you know, woman for president, that kind of shit. Yeah, but never so get talking power. About, like, well, as, yeah, a, as a group. You reproduce the existing inequalities. You just have, you know, a couple of sort of token marginalized peoples who now get to participate at the highest level of those unequal in, in systems. So, so like lean in feminism, right? Where you, in, you, yeah. you don't change the competition. You just try to win the competition on the patriarchal capitalist rules that are already set. Yes, exactly. And so she talks about these different sort of these four modes of politics of our time, which is, you know, reactionary neoliberalism. This is the sort of, ne- you know, neoconservative like Republican mode of um, maintaining, you know, capitalist power, state, you know, st- uh, state power. And excluding marginalized people. And she talks about um, progressive neoliberalism, which is, again, lean in feminism, that kind of thing. And then she talks about populism and how we're seeing a rise that that populism fills a lot of the void that people experience when they only have those two those two modes, reactionary or progressive neoliberalism. And so this is where you see like Trump's rhetoric on you know, the the bad trade deals and like not he doesn't need Wall Street's money because he's got his own. And so you're able to fill that gap that voters experience with those two unsatisfying modes with populism. And she's like, this is the time of populism. And we have to decide what populism is going to fill that void. Is mm. it going to be reactionary populism mm. that essentially results in like, you know, Nazism and state so like uh, uh, national socialism? Or are we going to fill it with a progressive populism that trades this recognition mode, this uh, more, you know, black women CEOs lean in feminism mode for an actual revamping of, you know, structural inequality that doesn't just work on behalf of the white working classes, but works on behalf of all marginalized people and redistributes wealth and and power 
um, equitably. I was trying to find out who originally said the the quote or the 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 phrase um, "patriarchy can wear a skirt." Uh, is I thought that was an actual like maybe a title of an essay or something, but all that I found when I googled it was these weird neoliberal progressive neoliberal arguments from like the Guardian about why men should wear skirts. Uh, to defend the patriarchy. Oh my like, fucking god! <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So Dude, I'm, that's fucking bleak. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just got this like very strange uh, confirmation of Nancy Fraser's argument instead of the quote that I wanted. <laughs> it was very strange. So I think the the Nancy Fraser bit about you know progressive versus re- reactionary populism is this this might be the most critical point for the left since the New Deal because if we allow the Republicans to outflank liberals and liberal leftists with a reactionary populism, we are already teetering on the edge of fascism internationally. Across the globe, you have fascist movements on the rise. You have like fascist dictatorships gaining power in Latin America and in other places. And if national socialism, otherwise known as Nazism, uh, gains traction in this country in the form of, you know, Trump bucks and um, fucking Marco Rubio calling for, you know, like Democrats can't even get their shit together on a moratorium on rent collection. Like it is a fucking mess. And yeah, if we get outflanked on leftist economic uh, platforms by reactionaries, by fucking virulent, racist, misogynist, homophobic scumbags, yeah, we they're, are they're great people on we both sides. Fucked. Right. Yeah. There's not. No. Yeah, no, it's it's um, fucking scary. If you're a a leftist, do not fucking cheer on these Republicans who want to enact populist economic policies for this crisis, because one, they're only going to last for this crisis. These aren't going to be meaningful gains. Um, And two, like it is how fascism comes to rise is in these. I mean, this is how Hitler came to rise. It was an economic crisis in germany and he promised to help the right people and that's how you get nazis and we have to you know bernie sanders wants medicare at this point it's almost irrelevant what bernie sanders wants i think but that's why you need a platform that offers not medicare for all who are white citizens but medicare for all including undocumented people you know including like like, it's just it's it's a very instructive moment and i feel like we are going to bungle it and um, because we don't have a plan and our leaders, you know, for whatever we can refer to them as our leaders, the least awful political leaders in this country are shit. So, <laughs> shit. It, so you, you were talking about how important it is to not cheer on Republicans as they, you know, make this like head fake to the left as it relates to giving people a UBI to deal with this, you know, massive unemployment spike that's going to happen or otherwise. And at the same time, you know, the Democratic Party isn't doing that. They're doing the knee jerk thing that says whatever Trump does, it's bad, regardless of how it impacts people, because it's Trump. Uh, And they're like, well, no, we can't do that. We can't, you know, give checks to millionaires. We got to means test this and everything else. And like, it's not that ain't it either, chief. You know, like the solution, as you point out, is a popular left wing uh, socialist program that is, uh, you know, full with full throated uh, support. And universal programs that, you know, don't leave anyone out in the cold. And, you know, the Democrats aren't going to do that because their primary thing is just to be anti-Trump. And if Trump turns around in in this crisis, 
that you know is largely his fault for how bad it's gotten and will get ends up looking really good to poor people working people people that you know should be easily captured by a left-wing populist movement and you're saying like oh no we can't do it he's a bad guy you know like he's president cheeto we can't let anything good happen to workers under his watch like that's gonna fucking fail so bad and that's only going to lead to greater support of the right wing in the United States. Yeah, you're right. And I, I don't want to I don't want to necessarily when I said, like, don't cheer on the Republicans, I guess what I maybe what I should have said is rather than praising the right for these proposals, we have to just bully the Democrats into upping the ante into saying that and more and more and more like that is, I think the danger of this moment is ceding that ground to the right and saying, well, you know, throwing up our hands and saying, well, if the Democrats aren't going to do anything, at least the Republicans will. Like, no, this is the moment to put immense pressure on the leadership of whatever shriveled up left exists in this country to to, you know, if Trump says a thousand, we say two thousand. If Trump says, you know, increase unemployment payments to 80 percent of your wages, we say increase them to 150 percent of your wages. If they say moratorium on rents for people making under twenty thousand dollars a year, we say moratorium on rents for all. And then after this crisis, massive renters rights movements and restructuring of, you know, the rent system. And I just think, yeah, like it's it's a missed opportunity for everybody to cede this ground to the right. And it's 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 incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Reactionary populism says everything for all citizens and reactionary progressive or, or uh, sorry, progressive populism says everything for all humans, like for all people. And it's that difference between citizens and humans that I think, you know, where, where everything turns. Right. That's the axis for for everything. We're already seeing it was like a headline today in Politico that uh, DOJ seeks new emergency powers amid coronavirus pandemic. And it's like, you know, suspending habeas corpus and detaining people uh, without any sort of description of uh, what you did and why we're detaining you. Is that the you know, Earn It Act that's going through? Uh, I don't I didn't see Earn It. No. Well, okay. it's a request from the de- the Department of Justice has requested Congress to consider passing a measure that would basically allow the DOJ. Oh, OK, so this is from the article. Documents reviewed by Politico detail the department's requests to lawmakers on a host of topics, including the statute of limitations, asylum and the way court hearings are conducted. So essentially it would be it's not even like you might think, OK, well, we we may need a strong uh, system of being able to quarantine populations right now like right we we may need some way of ensuring that people do stay stay home and don't travel outside of major cities and spread which we already see is happening a bunch of fucking west coasters traveled to their vacation homes in idaho and brought coronavirus to this tiny town with one icu bed so like it's tempting to say yeah we do need like strong federal government means for stopping the spread of this. And, and there's a good argument to say that the president already has those powers. Yes. Like and under if if there's an emergency, like if they declare an emergency, they he does the president does have powers to do that. You don't need these extra powers to like indefinitely detain people while a uh, an emergency is ongoing. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and the wealthy uh, Californians going to Idaho for their summer homes, like that's also happening up here in New York. Uh, New Yorkers moving up to their New England summer cabins. Yeah, Great Barrington. And, um, yeah, in Great Barrington, and lots of other places where there's like there's yeah there's like one ICU bed or the even uh, the whole hospital is you know like an hour drive away and like that's. If you get sick, like, we can't do anything for you there. It's very counterintuitive, but, you know, uh, staying in a city that has a lot of resources, you know, it sucks to be stuck in an apartment forever, like, I, like no doubt. But it's also, like, where we, you know, cities are where we keep all of our stuff as humans. You know, <laughs> the, the civilization keeps all their stuff in cities. And you yeah, should, except, uh, except the food. Yeah, you got to stay there. That's in the fields. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. Uh, so, you know, I think that there's a lot of talk that w- is going on to Bernie to drop out and present unity so that Dems can defeat Trump. And like, to your earlier point about, uh, you know, the Dems really having to stake out claim and uh, put their flag in policies that actually help working people who are, are suffering now, because a lot of them aren't working. Bernie Sanders needs to stay in this race. And you know, he's doing amazing things with his campaign. Like just now, the supporters of Bernie have been able to raise $2 million to help uh, various community organizations that are directly trying to help people in this crisis. And I think that his prospective role as organizer in chief, if he were to be elected and become the president of the United States, could be demonstrated in this crisis by organizing as much as possible and building on existing uh, mutual aid networks. So, you know, we've got millions of people who are volunteering texting, calling for Bernie. And all these people have very similar goals. They want to help average regular people and each other and, you know, fight for people that they don't know. And in this crisis, we can do that. And, you know, I th- hopefully something like that comes out of the Bernie Sanders campaign in the same way that, you know, Occupy uh, Wall Street turned into Occupy uh, Hurricane Sandy uh, when uh, Sandy suddenly hit the email lists and everything else were used to develop mutual aid and disaster relief uh, organizations that helped, you know, get generators where people needed them and, you know, move people out of apartments that were being flooded. And, and I think that that kind of thing could happen again now uh, with the, uh, the Sanders movement. You know, what, what this keeps uh, making me think about is this uh, 2015 book called Inventing the Future by um, Alex Williams and Nick Cernick. And like, it made a big splash when it first came out. It's been talked about to death. But one thing that the present moment makes me think of is their distinction between like a more robust structural progressive politics that they want and this thing that they call folk politics which they diagnose the current moment as like being infested with or something where like folk politics are just things that don't scale that maybe like feel good or are performative in some way but don't scale up to the level of the problems that we face. Mm. You know, so like they they give an example of like, like I'm not disparaging community gardens, but like even the most robust community garden network cannot replace modern agriculture. If we did want to replace agriculture, modern agriculture as we know it, the community garden model we have isn't enough, right? So you would need to build some sort of never before seen system of organization to link up all of those community garden systems. And mm. they're very skeptical of the possibility of, of being able to do that. Right. Because if like, mm. if you need, if you need to f- feed an entire country with wheat, right. You need like that much wheat. How many community gardens can devote so many acres to wheat production, you know, and it re- actually requires a lot more work to organize 
a dispersed amount of people instead of like charging let's go real lefty and say you know like a commune of a dozen farmers that have a hundred acres of land and say like you guys go build wheat go grow wheat like that's that that sort of system scales but like asking ten thousand community gardeners to grow a 10 by 10 plot of wheat that that's actually harder and will produce lower yields like yeah, I, I don't yeah. i didn't do the i didn't i didn't run the the numbers on that obviously that's just like sort of a abstract example you know and, and i think about that a lot now is like when we need masks when we need ventilators like building a ventilator like you know you can only have so much 3d printing and like still not build these incredibly complicated medical devices like you need a factory we, we need to take a factory and build ventilators and hope well, that that factory has the appropriate qui- equipment to even and sterilization like, procedures and yeah, like, there's like, like complicated stuff that like yeah. we either need to take that in the name of the workers or like do something else like but I, I don't been, i don't think we can 3d print our way out of this you know problem. It, it's it, for 200 years the question among the various leftist tendencies is not like what are our morals and our values like we mm-hmm. all want the abolition of capitalism we all want everyone to have the right to the ne- necessaries of life the question is scalability and tactics i think and that mm-hmm. this moment calls for a very like robust discussion of tactics and scalability and mm-hmm. what kind of society is going to be sustainable. What do we build in the shell of the old that is currently crumbling? And what are the right ways to, you know, you either end up having sort of a going hyper local, generally speaking, and building a society that's just not really quite capable of building like ventilators because we don't have the factories and the equipment necessary to build an incredibly complex item and then distribute it, it along the lines that people mm-hmm. will need it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a very this moment is making us ask really, really difficult to to answer questions and make diagnoses that we haven't even theorized fully enough, I think. Yeah, I think when like in Allende's Chile, for example, right, when they built like that cybernetic socialism through like telex machines, like all up and down the country. You know, they had a reactionary populist strike that happened, and there was actually enough organization going on in that fairly simple proto-internet 70s uh, networking system to actually run the government through a a general strike. And that's pretty impressive, but it's, but it's not the sort of centralized command and control system of, like, the Soviet Union. So it's like, it's, I think it's completely within the realm of possibility that we devise some system whereby we can achieve all of the individual freedoms of anarcho-socialism while still scaling up to the degree of our problems, you know, to actually confront the the enormous global problems that we have, but mm-hmm. not it, not sacrifice uh, enough uh, dignity or freedoms to do it, you know. So when we were going to Home Depot the other day, we were talking about um, this, you know, concept uh, that we colloquially refer to as dual power of uh, trying to build uh, new institutions, uh, especially ones that are very democratic and people run to build our power uh, from the ground up while also, you know, doing what we can electorally and putting pressure on the existing state and ideally, you know, uh, trying to reform it uh, to be for the interests of, you know, working people as much as possible. And I think that you're, there's a lot of points that you guys just made that I completely agree with. Like, you know, a, a bunch, a federation of voluntarily associated workers, you know, may be able to make sure that everyone's uh, needs on a, an incredibly local basis are accounted for and taken care of, and that nobody is like dying in the streets uh, or in their homes from 
lack of, you know, toilet paper or, you know, anything that's like, you know, really uh, considered a necessity. And at the same time, we need to be able to marshal our industrial apparatus to be able to take care of the needs that are, you know, out of reach of, you know, the individual community organization, like making ventilators and things like that. And there's there's pros and cons to or there's challenges and uh, strengths to both, you know, approaches that, you know, both need to happen simultaneously. One strength of, you know, the community organizing level is that it's incredibly hard to disrupt by the ruling class, like because of the fact that it is so decentralized and based in the grassroots relationships of regular everyday people. So it's very hard to, you know, clamp down on that from the top. Uh, and at the same time, you look at the the Sanders candidacy and how how quickly and effectively the entire corporate ruling elite uh, lined up against Biden as the anti-Bernie candidate. And basically, you know, by the polls, looks like they may have ended the primary early. And th- that is very hard to do to, you know, a federation of worker-owned co-ops that are supported locally by the people that they're directly taking care of. In every crisis, there is opportunity, and this is what Naomi Klein always talks about with the shock doctrine and disaster capitalism, is that the capitalist imperial state will use every crisis as an opportunity to ratchet down and clamp down their authority and power uh, more effectively. And things could get really bad by the looks of things. You know, I know that the uh, National Guard has already been rolled out in many locations, and we could be seeing the beginnings of some very dystopic seeds sprouting. So we as people looking to take care of one another and build a future that's like worth living in uh, need to also do what we can to take advantage of this crisis as well. Like there's a lot of people who are straight up laid off and have literally nothing to do other than hiding their homes from each other. And there's a latent potential in that existent fact for those people to be put to work directly taking care of one another. And if the population of the United States were to seize on that opportunity and figure out how to build networks of mutual aid and put people who are otherwise able to, you know, drive around with a mask and pick up groceries for the elderly or figure out how to assess the material needs of their local neighborhoods, those organizations could persist not just through this crisis, but ongoing and be something that when the next inevitable crisis comes to pass, uh, will be even stronger. Yeah. You know, I think there is some, a, a lot to that. There is some, some good research, uh, right after the beginning of the Arab spring that showed that those movements and those uprisings could happen so quickly because, uh, there were those sorts of, um, grassroots, organizations like you were talking about, Chris, then the the only problem, though, is that like they have a really hard time holding power once everything falls to shit. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's why so many of those countries, basically, except for the first one, Tunisia, fell to some sort of reactionary government afterward. You mm-hmm. know, it's like they couldn't organize a robust party platform to then seize the state. So like, so I don't know. It seems like there's something like the new to be born in in Fraser's phrasing, I think is like, it's still not born yet. Like we don't know what the, it cannot be born. Yeah. According right, to yeah. her via grammar. Yeah. <laughs> right. But like, it, I, I, it feels like there's some sort of tactic or strategy. Well, it's probably both that we have to develop to grab the strengths of 
both of those tendencies, right? To have those robust local systems while also being able to seize the state or whatever powers the state's states currently have in the moment of crisis. And one thing that's remarkable about this particular moment in history, and I always kind of can't help but think of Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, which Mm -hmm. is, to my mind, as far as I know, one of the only existing like written works, fictional or otherwise, that actually gives a model for how an anarchist society might function, one that Mm -hmm. is like believable and compelling. And believably shitty in a lot of its uh, aspects. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Which is, I think, what makes it realistic, because it will be kind of shitty in lots of ways, just like living under Mm -hmm. any system Mm -hmm. is shitty Mm -hmm. in its own unique ways. But we're living in in a moment when which we have technology that can really efficiently organize data and human needs in a way that can be accessed by all. So, for example, if you're talking about like a federated system, like a Soviet type system that tries to connect the needs of local populations across massive like geographic areas, across cultures and governing structures that may vary from each other in different ways, like we have this robust technological system that could allow us to Just like keep track of shit. Keeping track of things is so crucial to distributing resources in ways that are efficient and useful to, you know, like just keeping track of like who has enough food, who has enough shelter, where how do we divert people and resources. And so like it's kind of an exciting moment to be asking all of these questions because we do have an unprecedented technological apparatus that might actually make that feasible. Mm. And for all of my sort of like critiques of anarchists and anarchist like literature, if it was ever going to work at scale, at the very least, we have the technologies to make it work. The next question is, who is currently in possession of those technologies Mm -hmm. and how do we seize that apparatus and govern it democratically, govern it for the people. That, I think, is the real question that, like, even if Mm. we were to be able to seize the servers, you know, Mm. uh, who then gets to control it? And you see that in the dispossessed, right, is that who controls this centralized system that if you if listeners haven't read the dispossessed, go read it. It's such a fantastic book. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually have a PDF. I have a PDF copy of it. If anybody wants my PDF version, hop in my DMs or email us. It's and she's dead, so I don't feel bad about like she doesn't need to make money off that <laughs> book anymore. Um, R.I.P. to a real one. Yeah, rest in power. But like that is even for her kind of I would argue somewhat utopic anarchist moon society. Um, if that doesn't get you on to read it, then if anarchists on the moon doesn't move you to want to read a book, <laughs> I don't know what will. Frankly, we're anarchists um, on the moon. We carry <laughs> we a carry harpoon. <laughs> And we wear great clothes and we live in dorms. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I do like that's a central question, even for her, even in this. And it will continue to be a central question for as as long as the human species continues to exist is like, what are the most important, powerful tools at our disposal to improve human lives and and um, and human flourishing and who controls them? And how do we make sure that that stays democratically implemented? Yeah, I think when we ask, like, who has control over all of these systems that distribute goods and services, you know, the Amazons, the Walmarts, the Home Depots, right, of the world, Alibaba, you know, there's entire uh, private corporations that we don't, as Americans, even know about because they don't 
uh, they're not as popular here, but you know they're out there. These are corporations that are basically managed economies, right? And, uh, mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. is another another Verso book that we're <laughs> that I'm, I'm stealing the thesis of uh, the Republic of Walmart. They plan uh, production, they plan distribution, they plan uh, employment, and it's only through the like the last probably 20, 30 years of innovation in logistics work that they are capable of doing that. And while there's a certain degree of politics built into those technologies where they're meant to be controlled by an elite few, right? Like there's nothing built into uh, resource supply chains that guarantees that they're democratic, but they do guarantee that a set small group of people at the top uh, of a hierarchy get to run them right but mm-hmm. um in ge- uh, in general you know like it, it is totally possible to like do allende's chile or something or or some sort of cybernetic socialism if we were to just <laughs> just right but if, if we were to uh, be able to democratize and socialize these enormous companies that are already planned economies you know like like ace hardware is a buyer's co-op it's not just a a chain of stores, right? And so mm-hmm. you could actually build in some sort of cooperative system into uh, these already enormous distribution channels. So another thing that we were talking about on uh, our ride to Home Depot was this idea of a socialist sector of the economy, which is something that we've talked about a lot, mostly off mic, because it's still a pretty vague idea as it relates you know, to our conversation. Uh, but we were talking about the idea that, as Kropotkin points out, you know, 130 years ago, uh, we had the industrial capacity to take care of everyone's uh, needs with like a 20-hour work week. And now that we have a lot more people, but we also have industrial efficiency, you know, that's like 10, 20-fold what it was 130 years ago. So the idea that we could all work 15, 20-ish hours a week and fulfill all of our needs is even more real than it was then. And we were talking about the idea that, like, could it be possible for a socialist sector of the economy to exist alongside a capitalist sector of the economy, where the capitalist sector takes care of all wants and desires and luxuries, but the socialist sector takes care of fulfilling the needs of everybody who works within it so that, you know, we do 20 hours a week at some job that directly fulfills a human need for the rest of our population. And in exchange for doing that job, we have housing, food, uh, healthcare, water, internet, anything that we democratically determine as like needs, bare minimum well-being guaranteed to everyone. But there's like a capitalist market that only lets you sell like fun things like popcorn and uh, yeah, <laughs> treats and, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. treats and yeah, uh, treats. entertainment. Treat, and, the treat economy. Yeah. And, the all important treat economy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and drones and video games and all that other shit. I feel like after those 20 hours a week that we all, you know, do a dignified job that helps give us meaning and uh, take care of each other without exploitation. We would, at least I would, go ahead and voluntarily sell a bunch of my labor after that to, you know, a worker co-op or some capitalist or whatever to get money to buy frivolities because, you know, I I like that shit. I like, uh, you know, going to movies and I like playing with little beat making software and all that kind of shit and that it might work. And the question, the biggest nut that we couldn't crack in the conversation would be whether or not the capitalists would allow for that 
like if they wouldn't fight the establishment of like a needs fulfillment socialist sector of the economy uh, because it might deny them the leverage that they have over the working masses to be able to exploit their labor while claiming that it's voluntarily associative because like if you had a capitalist sector of the economy to the side of a socialist sector of the economy you could actually make the argument that everybody involved in it was doing it voluntarily you know because they weren't being put over a barrel so that they had to enrich someone who's already rich just to survive well i think a foundational problem to that is that the very nature of capitalism requires unending ext- extensive growth capital cannot survive because it is a extractive system you the capitalists goal is to enrich themselves by extracting labor from the workers and so as such just because of the laws of like physics um it must constantly expand find new markets find new modes of um exploitation and extraction so how you pen that into a sector of the economy is i don't know how in practice that works and I guess the other the other facet of that is you're now demanding the same system that's responsible for the well-being of all through this sort of anarcho, you know, communist approach to our needs. That system is now responsible for also regulating capital, ensuring that it's not a polluter, ensuring that it's not enslaving people, ensuring that it's, you know, essentially playing by whatever rules we deem appropriate for that sector of the economy to operate. So I think those are two big problems with allowing, you know, capitalism is a virus and it infects everything that it can. And I don't know that you can safely coordinate off from another system that works for the well-being of all. Yeah, well, we were also talking about how another big nut crack in that vision would be how the socialist uh, sector of the economy would accrue the initial capital required to exist in the first place, like the fields, the farm equipment, you know, the electricity generation equipment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that we were talking about would be like, I don't know, maybe it, it's like seized, you know, by people, by popular demand, because, you know, I think that that's the, what Mark said. Yeah, you yeah, have to seize it. Yeah. They're and, not going to you can't buy it. They're not going to sell it to you. Yeah, but it, it it has to be, you know, a deal, like Donnie Deals would say, you know, and that the uh the, the deal would be that this is, you know, guillotine insurance. Like that and I think that it I get I the see, feel- I think the guillotine is guillotine insurance. Like I think <laughs> when it comes to like seizure of the means of production and the and the goods that are necessary for the maintenance of human life and flourishing, like Guillotine insurance just postpones the inevitable either resurgence of capitalism because it is a very resilient system um, or like, I don't know, I, I the, the guillotine insurance is give me all your shit and welcome to the new anarcho-communist world, world order. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I just feel like it, there's I, a greater and greater sense from capitalists that a bunch of people, especially in the U.S., are considered just total surplus population that they don't care about at all. They don't want to have to feed. They don't want to have to pay taxes to, you know, uh, ensure health care. They don't, they don't want to do any of that because they can have, you know, emerging markets of both labor and consumption build the shit that they, makes them rich and buy the shit that makes them rich. And so there's like a, an amount of people that if they could somehow, you know, uh, become self-reliant in terms of needs, uh, I feel like different from previous centuries of relation between capital and labor, 
the capitalists would be mostly cool with it. But I don't know. Like, I, you're probably right, Britt. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't really care to appease capitalists. Um, seize their wealth, seize their assets. And uh, if they behave themselves, then we won't guillotine them. That's my like, I don't see another way. You have to stomp out capitalism. It's too robust, too resilient and too voracious. It cannot be allowed to live alongside any just economic system that prioritizes the needs of the people. It just I don't think it would it would be like saying, well, we can let the bear live in our house as long as it stays in the guest room. Like you just like, it's just not <laughs> like the nature of the bear is not to live in your guest room and, you know, like maintain its space and, and eat only an appropriate amount of your food. It is a bear and it will break out and it will eat all of your food, all and your berries, all your honey. Yeah, it's going to take all of it. No, I I, uh, I agree with 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 all with all of this but i I think the um two things i wanted to bring up were that one you know capitalism looked more like what you were describing chris than it does today when marx was writing yes right so like when marx was writing um Mm. capitalist firms like like the corporation as an entity was something that should only get like it would have a limited time frame and do a very specific thing Right. So like, if your city needed a bridge built, you would form the Troy Bridge Making Corporation. Right. And then that corporation made up of a board of capitalists would issue bonds or whatever, raise money to build the bridge. They would employ people to build the bridge. And then once it was built, they would recoup whatever costs that were left by putting a toll on the bridge. And that's how most railroads were first made. Mm. Like you'd have like the Pennsylvania Railroad was a corporation of railroad makers in Pennsylvania, right? And the state would issue that corporate license. But then eventually the, the railroads and then also the oil companies got bigger and more powerful than the states that issued corporation license. Oh, shit. Right? So, Which yeah. is the inevitable in outcome of capital because of its expansionist nature. Right. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. problem that we're always going to run up against is, the yeah, the nature of capital is to see a limit and turn it into a barrier to be overcome, right? Mm-hmm. So it's going to see like, oh, okay, no, you're not allowed to enter this sector because we believe that it is we've decided that that is necessary for human flourishing right you like no capitalist can make money off of ventilators right and it's going oh okay well so we can't make ventilators but we could make maybe like a little widget that is really fun in drones or something right you know something frivolous but we're going to control the whole market for it so the socialist government becomes our biggest customer in building this one thing that's necessary for ventilators and drones or something like that, mm. right? And in in mm. that way, they, they become a, indispensable to the economy and then they leverage that power to become even bigger and more powerful, right? So you, you, you eventually just like can't, you can never really contain them by the nature of the system that they run on. And then the, the other thing that I would just say is that we always have to be cognizant of like, we are like, what is the decision-making mechanism that decides what goes into the socialist category and what goes into the capitalist category? Yeah, right? it would like, have to what, be as you know, democratic like, as possible. And Right, yeah. And that, those, those would actually be some very, very interesting conversations about like mm. what should be subject to the profit motive and what should be subject to democratic control. Uh, I would love to hear those conversations, but as of yet, I, I'm not creative enough to think of 
what sort of human organization or institution could make that decision appropriately. You also have to consider the fact that, like, because capitalism is inefficient, because it is because it sucks resources, it does not efficiently distribute resources. It is going to be a tax on whatever system allows it to exist. So the capitalists will. So what's their what's going to be their tax rate? They're going to continue to use our roads and our waterways. They're presumably going to continue to rely on research and development for their new widgets. Um, who's going to be paying for that? Does the socialist state have the right to goods developed under a capitalist R&D? Like there are so many. Mm. Um, it's similar to to my mind. It's similar to the the reason that Medicare for all is so much better than an insurance system and a public option is that it cuts through the bureaucratic bullshit of and it's the same problem with means testing, right, is that it cuts through the shit of deciding who gets to have what and who makes money off of it. Yeah, all for and, all. Uh, yeah. And having a capitalist system will put that exact same tax on what will now be a socialist system or a communist system that's that's overt goal is to most evenly distribute all goods and resources so that people can live as comfortably and flourish as much as possible. And, you know, you have to ask, like, what is the trade off there is whatever does capitalism truly provide us with anything so remarkable and incredible that it's worth the cost of having an inefficient system that exploits the workers and often just produces trash for us anyway, like things that are that have planned obsolescence built into them so that you have to buy a new one every two years or, or whatever else. It definitely raises a lot of interesting questions. The thought experiment in and of itself really reveals a lot of the, you know, Marx's contradictions of capital as well as like just the ways in which the system is not sustainable. What this is making me realize is what at base, what we're really trying to get at is how do you decide what is necessary for human civilization and what just like is kind of icing on the cake? What is like nice to have? Because I totally agree with Chris that I would I want my treats. Right. And I want to oh, be. You know, I love my yeah, treats. I, I've, I've got to have them. I've, I've, I, I demand my treats. I want them. And 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 I don't think. Uh, and I don't want to go to some like Soviet style like requisition center where they hand over my VR headset and they're like, you get 20 minutes with the VR headset and then you must give it to your neighbor or something like that. You know, like, I, or yeah, whatever. You know, like I, I our, our imaginations, I think, have been really stunted with uh, how to distribute and access like fun stuff because we assume that that's the realm of. Of, of ca- capital is like where disruption and creativity happen. And today's Kropotkin is going to very much disrupt that notion. It's going to just cut it right down to the root that, yeah. you know, you do not require a capitalist system to enjoy like your treats. You can have your treats. If you like your treats, you can keep them. <laughs> oh, shit. Is this uh, uh, is this treat boy, uh, Pete? Good Pete? Uh, yeah, yeah. Today we're going to be talking about luxury, so that'll yeah, be that'll fit fuck, into this yes. conversation really nicely, and it'll also dovetail with current events in a way that, like, I know a lot of us, if we're very fortunate, especially our you know professional managerial class folks, uh, you're probably experiencing a little bit more downtime now than you normally would if you're working from home or you're out of work. If there is a bright side to that, and we should at least try to find one, might be that you have more leisure time now. So Kropotkin will give us a taste of like what how that could be the case under a system that, you know, doesn't also steal your paycheck at the same time. Well, there were yeah. bodies everywhere, and then the bomb went off. I'm just remembering uh, the uh, Futurama hedonism bot. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah, uh, hell yeah, yeah. But so this this like does make me think of like you know like what are creative ways to distribute things that are not necessary, right? Because like I think what you're getting at, Chris, is, right, is that I want to be able to go in the market and without like forcing anyone else to do anything. I want to be able to just when it's available, freely choose to decide to to buy like a new sexy iPhone or something, which like I, I'm on the record on this podcast saying that like I love technology rollouts and stuff like and, and reviews and stuff. So like obviously that's not necessary. In fact, it's probably counterproductive to like a global human civilization that is sustainable. But I still want those things and I don't think it's it's necessarily a poison pill, right? So, like, so what, how could we make these things? We could make them through, you could win them through lotteries. You could uh, make several different ways of, like, working through different sorts of currencies. That, yeah, you can offer service in exchange for, you could have a voucher system wherein, like, you spend enough days shoveling the shit in the shit mines and you get... Labor tokens. The iPhone, yeah, like... <laughs> I mean, you know, ultimately what we want is the abolition of the wage system, I think. But there yep. are certainly ways to distribute the treats in a in a post-wage society that that allows for the fact that they are they are often quite frivolous. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't deserve them. And that doesn't mean we can't build mechanisms for developing and distributing them, I think. Yeah, I think there's there's ways of radically rethinking the commodity commodity markets and the money form. Such that, you know, money as we know it, cash, only buys very specific things, mm-hmm. right? And, and yeah. you, could, you, could, you could probably get around the, the natural tendency of capitalist firms to expand well beyond the, the structures that started managing them if you can control what money can and cannot buy. I don't yeah. know. That's, that's, that may be the beginning of, of some idea. Well, certainly that that might be a mechanism by which you can keep the means of production themselves from becoming privately owned if we were to ever go to a more cooperative uh, society. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we're going to be doing a very special bonus episode that will drop probably the same day that this is released or perhaps the day after, but it's going to be on the working women of Collar City in the mid to late 1800s. And there's sort of a a local like folk hero among the history of working class women and labor unionization. Her name is Kate Mullaney, and she was from Troy. She was an Irish immigrant who worked in the laundries in Troy. At the time, Troy was one of the richest cities in the country, and its primary industries were steel and textile. And at the time of the events that we're going to be discussing, which would be during the Civil War, uh, 1864-65, and afterwards, um, there was a really strong labor movement in Troy and a, and a burgeoning labor movement all across the country. And Kate Mullaney was one of the very earliest women's labor activists. She unionized her fellow laundresses. They went on strike. They were able to win better wages, better working conditions. And so she's one of the forerunners of women's labor, but also really important for the labor movement in and of itself in ways that we'll talk about. It's going to there are a lot of themes in this this bonus episode that we're going to do weave themselves into some of the most pressing questions for leftism of our time, which is coalition building, working within existing power structures, tactics, strategies. It's it's a really kind of fascinating and very heartening story, I think, to um, instruct us in these times of agitating for social change. So many of the 
privileges that we have now in the 21st century are owed very directly to these people and these women. And so we want to elevate those voices. And I think it's going to be a really great episode. If you want to hear it, you can head over to patreon.com slash ironweeds. We're basically going to be talking about this period of time between 1825 when the detachable collar was first developed, which is what part of the industry that really made Troy so wealthy um, was this collar. So that's why Troy has the moniker, the collar city. And basically how this teeny tiny piece of garment like led to this massive, incredibly vibrant labor cooperative. And yeah, I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. It's a really fun story and it's very instructive to this moment. So yeah, thanks so much, Brittany, for doing the research on this. I'm really excited to get into this uh, bonus and people who are supporting us on Patreon. Thank you so much. Your support actually like means a great deal to us and allows uh, for Brittany to be able to pay herself, you know, some modicum, uh, hopefully an increasingly close to livable wage uh, for all the extra work that uh, she's doing on both the production of this podcast, as well as the real deep dive research that allows us to have content that you're not really going to be able to find anywhere else. And uh, yeah, so yeah, and one thing I, I sh- I, you know, it's been quite a while since we did like a, a real big plug for the Patreon, but I, I should say like there are so many things I want to do with the podcast, you know, do more research heavy episodes, do more audio content and do like more kind of elaborate mixing and production stuff. Like there's just a ton of stuff I'd love to do, but I literally like do not have the time to devote to it. And so your monetary support allows me to divert more time from other semi-lucrative projects to essential services and so yeah exactly so yeah your support literally has a very very unlike many other podcasts where your support just helps them buy more american spirits uh your support of this podcast will actually help me produce more and better content in a very very direct way because i don't have any money so thank you for those of you who are currently supporting the pod and um if you want to hear more awesome content, this story was something I wanted to do from the very outset of the podcast because Kate Mullaney is such an incredibly interesting and important figure. And so if you want to hear more shit like that, I want to do an episode about how the Jews run the world and where that comes from and why like, it's so bizarre that there are actually legions of people who believe that. What is that? What? So I want to do an episode on that. We want to do an episode on you know other labor histories coming out of the capital region. But those are very time intensive projects. And uh, pay me, and I'll do them. Hell yeah! And, and while we're uh, plugging stuff, you know, there is uh, uh, so because all the all the campuses in New York State are um, effectively closed, and we have to do all of our classes remotely. I decided to take this as an opportunity to just make my classes open to pretty much everyone. So. Fuck yeah! I, uh, so for the the month, I, I I basically only have the month of April left to teach, and I'm going to stream all of my lectures on Twitch at DA Banks. Uh, so twitch.tv slash DA Banks. The chat is open there. There will be a separate Discord just for my students to uh, you know keep uh, some privacy issues together and, and make sure that they f- they feel comfortable only talking to you know other people in the in the class but i'm gonna keep the lectures open so there'll be like live 
lectures on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then I'll record them and, and upload them later uh, as, as sort of static things. Uh, but I would really, I, I, I've already practiced a couple times and uh, I, I had something on communist uh, cities and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So if, um, if you like it and if you had like, like requests to do other stuff, uh, let me know. And that can also become Patreon content or uh, Ironweeds related stuff, because I, I, I think I'd really like to, to get into doing stuff like that, too. Well, hell yeah. I look forward to auditing your course. Uh, and just in, to, in these times of desperate need for content, we're here for you. We will produce your content. Oh, and, you work from home. Yeah. And, and I mean, really, like the, the first one I'm going to do is about urban planning for pandemics and how urban planning is closely related to public health. And a lot of our modern planning comes out of a desire to avoid stuff like the Spanish flu that is probably the n- next most global uh, and deadly pandemics that uh we've seen uh and one more plug while we're on the topic my band zombie giuliani uh just put out a record we talked about last week and two of my band mates are in the more trees collective which is a arborist worker-owned co-op that they have taken from a sole proprietorship and turned into a worker operated and uh, organized uh, managed co-op and if you are sitting at home and you're looking at your window and you're realizing hey, I need to have some tree work done on my house or business or whatever. They are very much looking to do work and they will keep themselves socially distanced and uh, be able to do some really awesome work and you'll be helping uh, you know, the cooperative economy as well. They do tree trimming, right? Yeah, they do all tree things. So anything. I had a couple of trees I need trimmed. Yo. Well, yeah. So did more... they, trim our... did yep. they, tr- they trimmed our trees uh, last year and they did a really good job. Awesome. Well, we'll put a link for them and a link to the Twitch stream for David's course in the show notes. All of your content uh, needs provided by uh, your friendly Ironweeds podcasters. Yeah. And we also had Christian from More Trees on the live stream. So anybody that had watched that. Tuesday live stream, yeah. Yeah. And talked a little bit about the process of cooperatization. And I think that that, you know, is a topic that we're going to be talking about more into the next couple of years. Yeah, I think especially as we rebound from the inevitable coming economic depression, I, I'm really, really hopeful that the cooperative model becomes well, this is going to be a huge opportunity. I mean, it's devastating in its effects. But when we come back from this and we will like there is going to be in Naomi Klein did an interview on um Intercepted with Jeremy Scahill that was really incredible. And she talked about how there was this massive lost opportunity in 2009 when we bailed out the banks and the auto industry when we could have really like made some sweeping reforms to the, you know, the banking and financial industries. We could have nationalized the car companies like and all of those opportunities were lost because we bailed out the rich instead of the working people. But I think when we rebound from this, it would be so great to see like the cooperative model really, especially like so many of these bars and restaurants that are closing, when this all ends, we're going to need more bars and restaurants. And bars and restaurants, in my opinion, are the perfect business model to cooperatize because they tend to be relatively small scale operations with, you know, a few very discrete types of positions that need to be filled. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next. But the cooperative model is, I think, very, very promising for the future. So something else that's looking up for the future is that if we can take a break like we have from the high level of increasing industrial capitalist production, our ecosystem seems to be faster than we thought. 
in its ability to heal and rebound. I'm looking at this article that came out in uh, New York Times, Traffic and Pollution Plummets as U.S. Cities Shut Down for Coronavirus. And there's all types of like satellite-based imagery that's just showing how quickly and thoroughly the pollution has been mitigated. And I also saw something on Twitter about how the Venice canals are like super crystal clear and apparently, you know, some swans are, are, are back or something like that. Did you guys see that? Yeah, I did see that. There was this, um, there's actually a National Geographic article saying that, you know, like the swans have always been there. They didn't come back for the first time ever. Uh, but the water is clearer due to far decreased uh, boating activity. So that that tweet that went that went viral, showing like about like basically nature rebounding instantly, is a half truth. Clearly, the water is ha clearer, but um, <laughs> uh, but swans have been there for a long time, and it's just generally a little bit nicer to but live. But we do know that 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 happens all the time when state agencies jump in to create protections for wildlife and like nature preserves. I mean, whales have returned to Hudson Bay after and like, beavers. And beavers have returned after stricter, you know, water protections regulations. If you've ever watched a David Attenborough documentary, you can see that the only times that he has anything positive to say other than just how sexy birds of paradise dances are. He does talk about, you know, when protections are put in place, like ecosystems have a a powerful ability to snap back pretty rapidly. Like the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Like the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Yeah, absolutely. It's a perfect example. Or many of the abandoned cities in China. Right, right, right. And so, you know, and and this has been really disappointingly turned into like some people making very Malthusian arguments about how like humanity is the virus and Corona is Mother Gaia's antibodies and whatever else. Humanity is not the virus. Like we yeah, we're have, still here. We live, we <laughs> live on an incredibly abundant planet with lots and lots of natural resources that can very easily sustain life for every living person and then some. Capitalism is the virus. Capitalism is what is killing our, our the natural world and. Um, you know, any resurgence of, of life and health that you're seeing in the planet and in the ecosystem is a direct result of capitalism slowing down, not people staying home. Yeah, um, yeah you, you can't let this make you go eco-fash. Yeah, don't go eco-fash, y'all. It's not a good look. This ain't it, chief. You did a no growth. Don't be an eco-fascist, OK? It's, it's no good. Yeah. Eco-socialism or eco-barbarism. Yeah, which is ecofascism. Um, and <laughs> we, we we really have to uh, take the, the the former. Yeah, yeah. There there are some uh, silver linings to all this, and you can uh, hope that maybe with some of the declined economic activity and production, like you can see like satellite photos that just show uh, greenhouse gases like mitigated severely now that uh, there's less cars on the road that we're doing less work in general less air traffic less air traffic and so you know like this is all completely possible uh we can reduce co2 emissions from transportation which is where a lot, i think a plurality of it comes from in the yep. united states we can reduce all of those things by changing the way that we live not our standard of living and um, modes of production and the modes of production, like we can, we can do all that. That's within our, 
our grasp and you can see how fast that can actually happen with, you know, like I'm not saying like this is an easy time to live through, but it, it's not like you're suddenly thrown into like Soviet Poland and, you know, you have to decide between a loaf of bread or or a fish or something like that. You know, like that's not it's no, <laughs> not what's you have happening. to choose between uh, toilet paper and picnic napkins. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. Will y'all stop buying toilet paper? All right. Everybody right now, if you're listening to this, if you have 50 bucks to spare. Go on onto the website www.amazon.com or some other website. Yeah, no, it's gonna <laughs> Any have, website you have want. to be Amazon. Probably gonna have to be Amazon. Uh, and put in your little search bar bidet. It's B I D E T is how you want to spell it. It's French, so that T is silent. Yes, so don't pronounce the T. Not that, also, not that Amazon washlet is another search term you can look for. Ah, yeah. okay, yeah. washlet. Yeah, stop or or, or, or but, butthole squirter. Butthole squirter. Uh, it, it, just wash your butt. You don't need 800 rolls of toilet paper to survive the apocalypse. And you know what? You can also just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to channel fucking Brace Belden and say, you can just use water in your hand. Like a solid <laughs> half of the earth does that. It's not, it's not that, it's, it's not that big, dude. Look, okay, no matter what. Oh, sorry, you go. Okay. <laughs> look, 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 no matter where you are, what you're doing right now, just stop. Close your eyes and touch your butthole. Just touch, oh. go in there, touch your butthole. If you're comfortable with that, <laughs> you want to. Yeah, another search term you could look for is butthole gun. Uh, like the uh, famous. What the uh, fuck has this podcast turned into? Sorry, one second. What, a, a, what, good one. Who, a good who, one. A good one. Who made Black Hole Sun? Is that? Oh, uh, oh. Is that is that is that Third Eye Blind? No, no. Uh, it's a. Uh, Oh, Soundgarden. All right. Uh, Soundgarden. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, the famous Soundgarden song, uh, Butthole Gun. You know? (laughs) Butthole Butthole Gun. gun. Won't you come and wash Wash away away the poo? All right. I think, gentlemen, does that do it for us for today? Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think we need to stop. Please yep. uh, <laughs> please enjoy the Kropotkin on luxury. Bidet is not a luxury, a necessity, in my humble opinion. Um, enjoy the Kropotkin. Check out the Kate Mullaney and the Women of Collar City bonus episode, patreon.com slash ironweeds. And in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter. Ironweeds Pod. You can find us on Instagram. Ironweeds Pod. And you can uh, shoot us an email if you want that Discord server invite at ironweedspod at, at gmail.com. <laughs> Won't you come? Won't you come? <laughs> All right. We love you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Peace. Chapter 9. The Need for Luxury. Man, however, is not a being whose exclusive purpose in life is eating, drinking, and providing a shelter for himself. As soon as his material wants are satisfied, other needs, of an artistic character, will thrust themselves forward the more ardently. Aims of life vary with each and every individual, and the more society is civilized, the more will individuality be developed, and the more will desires be varied. Even today, we see men and women denying themselves necessaries to acquire mere trifles, to obtain some particular gratification or some intellectual or material enjoyment. 
A Christian or an aesthetic may disapprove of these desires for luxury, but it is precisely these trifles that break the monotony of existence and make it agreeable. Would life, with all its inevitable sorrows, be worth living if, besides daily work, man could never obtain a single pleasure according to his individual tastes? If we wish for a social revolution, it is no doubt in the first place to give bread to all, to transform this execrable society, in which we can every day see robust working men dangling their arms for want of an employer who will exploit them, women and children wandering shelterless at night, whole families reduced to dry bread, men, women, and children dying for want of care or even for want of food. It is to put an end to these iniquities that we rebel. But we expect more from the revolution. We see that the worker compelled to struggle painfully for bare existence is reduced to ignorance of these higher delights, the highest within man's reach, of science, and especially of scientific discovery, of art, and especially of artistic creation. It is in order to obtain these joys for all, which are now reserved to a few, in order to give leisure and the possibility of developing intellectual capacities, that the social revolution must guarantee daily bread to all. After bread has been secured, leisure is the supreme aim. No doubt, nowadays, when hundreds and thousands of human beings are in need of bread, coal, clothing, and shelter, luxury is a crime. To satisfy it, the worker's child must go without bread. But in a society in which all can eat sufficiently, the needs which we consider luxuries today will be the more keenly felt. And as all men do not and cannot resemble one another, the variety of tastes and needs is the chief guarantee of human progress, there will always be, and it is desirable that there should always be, men and women whose desire will go beyond those of ordinary individuals in some particular direction. Everybody does not need a telescope, because, even if learning were general, there are some people who prefer examining things through a microscope to studying the starry heavens. Some like statues, some pictures. A particular individual has no other ambition than to possess an excellent piano while another is pleased with an accordion. The tastes vary, but the artistic needs exist in all. In our present, poor, capitalistic society, the man who has artistic needs cannot satisfy them unless he is heir to a large fortune, or by dint of hard work appropriates to himself an intellectual capital which will enable him to take up a liberal profession. Still, he cherishes the hope of someday satisfying his tastes more or less, and for this reason he reproaches the idealist communist societies with having the material life of each individual as their sole aim. In your communal stores you may perhaps have bread for all, he says to us, but you will not have beautiful pictures, optical instruments, luxurious furniture, artistic jewelry. In short, the many things that minister to the infinite variety of human tastes and in this way you suppress the possibility of obtaining anything besides the bread and meat which the commune can offer to all, and the gray linen in which all your lady citizens will be dressed. These are the objections which all communist systems have to consider, and which the founders of new societies, established in American deserts, never understood. They believed that if the community could procure sufficient cloth to dress all its members, a music hall in which the brothers could strum a piece of music or act a play from time to time, it was enough. 
they forgot that the feeling for art existed in the agriculturist as well as in the burger, and, notwithstanding that the expression of artistic feeling varies according to the difference in culture, in the main it remains the same. In vain did the community guarantee the common necessaries of life. In vain did it suppress all education that would tend to develop individuality. In vain did it eliminate all reading save the Bible. Individual tastes broke forth and caused general discontent. Quarrels arose when somebody proposed to buy a piano or scientific instruments, and the elements of progress flagged. The society could only exist on condition that it crushed all individual feeling, all artistic tendency, and all development. Will the anarchist commune be impelled by the same direction? Evidently not, if it understands that while it produces all that is necessary to material life, it must also strive to satisfy all manifestations of the human mind. We frankly confess that when we think of the abyss of poverty and suffering that surrounds us, when we hear the heart-rending cry of the worker walking the streets begging for work, we are loath to discuss the question, how will men act in a society whose members are properly fed to satisfy certain individuals desirous of possessing a piece of Sevres china or a velvet dress? We are tempted to answer, let us make sure of bread to begin with, we shall see to china and velvet later on. But we must recognize that man has other needs besides food, and as the strength of anarchy lies precisely in that it understands all human faculties and all passions, and ignores none, we shall, in a few words, explain how man can contrive to satisfy all his intellectual and artistic needs. We have already mentioned that by working four or five hours a day till the age of forty-five or fifty, man could easily produce all that is necessary to guarantee comfort to society. But the day's work of a man accustomed to toil does not consist of five hours. It is a ten hours day for three hundred days a year, and lasts all his life. Of course, when a man is harnessed to a machine, his health is soon undermined and his intelligence is blunted. But when man has the possibility of varying occupations, and especially of alternating manual with intellectual work, he can remain occupied without fatigue, and even with pleasure, for ten or twelve hours a day. Consequently, the man who will have done four or five hours of manual work necessary for his existence will have before him five or six hours which he will seek to employ according to his tastes, and these five or six hours a day will fully enable him to procure for himself if he associates with others, all he wishes for, in addition to the necessaries guaranteed to all. He will discharge first his task in the field, the factory, and so on, which he owes to society as his contribution to the general production, and he will employ the second half of his day, his week, or his year, to satisfy his artistic or scientific needs, or his hobbies. Thousands of societies will spring up to gratify every taste and every possible fancy. Some, for example, will give their hours of leisure to literature. They will then form groups comprising authors, compositors, printers, engravers, draftsmen, all pursuing a common aim, the propagation of ideas that are dear to them. Nowadays, an author knows that there is a beast of burden, the worker, to whom, for the sum of a few shillings a day, he can entrust the printing of his books, but he hardly cares to know what a printing office is like. If the compositor suffers from lead poisoning, and if the child who sees to the machine dies of anemia, are there not other poor wretches to replace them? 
But when there will be no more starvelings ready to sell their work for a pittance, when the exploited worker of today will be educated and will have his own ideas to put down in black and white and to communicate to others, then the authors and scientific men will be compelled to combine among themselves and with the printers in order to bring out their prose and their poetry. So long as men consider fustian and manual labor as a mark of inferiority, it will appear amazing to them to see an author setting up his own book in type, for has he not a gymnasium or games by way of diversion? But when the opprobrium connected with manual labor has disappeared, when all will have to work with their hands, there being no one to do it for them, then the authors, as well as their admirers, will soon learn the art of handling composing sticks and type. They will know the pleasure of coming together, all admirers of the work to be printed, to set up the type, to shape it into pages, to take it in its virginal purity from the press. These beautiful machines, instruments of torture to the child who attends on them from morn till night, will be a source of enjoyment for those who will make use of them in order to give voice to the thoughts of their favorite author. Will literature lose by it? Will the poet be less a poet after having worked out of doors or helped with his hands to multiply his work? Will the novelist lose his knowledge of human nature after having rubbed shoulders with other men in the forest or the factory, in the laying out of a road or on a railway line? Can there be two answers to these questions? Maybe some books will be less voluminous, but then more will be said on fewer pages. Maybe fewer waste sheets will be published, but the matter printed will be more attentively read and more appreciated. The book will appeal to a larger circle of better educated readers who will be more competent to judge. Moreover, the art of printing, that has so little progressed since Gutenberg, is still in its infancy. It takes two hours to compose and type what is written in ten minutes, but more expeditious methods of multiplying thought are being sought after and will be discovered. What a pity every author does not have to take his share in the printing of his works! What progress printing would have already made! We should no longer be using movable letters, as in the 17th century. Is it a dream to conceive of a society in which, all having become producers, all having received an education that enables them to cultivate science or art, and all having leisure to do so, men would combine to publish the works of their choice by contributing each his share of manual work? We have already hundreds of learned, literary, and other societies, and these societies are nothing but voluntary groups of men interested in certain branches of learning and associated for the purpose of publishing their works. The authors who write for the periodicals of these societies are not paid, and the periodicals are not for sale. They are sent gratis to all quarters of the globe, to other societies, cultivating the same branches of learning. This member of the society may insert in its review a one-page note summarizing his observations. Another may publish therein an extensive work, the results of long years of study, while others will confine themselves to consulting the review as a starting point for further research. It does not matter. All these authors and readers are associated for the production of works in which all of them take an interest. It is true that a learned society, like the individual author, goes to a printing office where workmen are engaged to do the printing. Nowadays, those who belong to the learned societies despise manual labor, which indeed is carried on under very bad conditions. But a community which would give a generous philosophic and scientific education to all its members 
would know how to organize manual labor in such a way that it would be the pride of humanity. Its learned societies would become associations of explorers, lovers of science, and workers, all knowing a manual trade and all interested in science. If, for example, the society is studying geology, all will contribute to the exploration of the Earth's strata, each member will take his share in research, and 10,000 observers where we have now only a 100 will do more in a year than we can do in 20 years. And when their works are to be published, 10,000 men and women, skilled in different trades, will be ready to draw maps, engrave designs, compose, and print the books. With gladness will they give their leisure, in summer to exploration, in winter to indoor work. And when their works appear, they will find not only a hundred, but 10,000 readers interested in their common work. This is the direction in which progress is already moving. Even today, when England felt the need of a complete dictionary of the English language, the birth of a lettre, who would devote his life to this work, was not waited for. Volunteers were appealed to, and a thousand men offered their services, spontaneously and gratuitously, to ransack the libraries, to take notes, and to accomplish in a few years a work which one man could not complete in his lifetime. In all branches of human intelligence, the same spirit is breaking forth, and we should have a very limited knowledge of humanity could we not guess that the future is announcing itself in such tentative cooperation, which is gradually taking the place of individual work. For this dictionary to be a really collective work, it would have required that many volunteer authors, printers, and printers' readers should have worked in common. But something in this direction is done already in the socialist press, which offers us examples of manual and intellectual work combined. It happens in our newspapers that a socialist author composes in lead his own article. True, such attempts are rare, but they indicate in which direction evolution is going. They show the road of liberty. In future, when a man will have something useful to say, a word that goes beyond the thoughts of his century, he will not have to look for an editor who might advance the necessary capital. He will look for collaborators among those who know the printing trade and who approve the idea of his new work. Together, they will publish the new book or journal. Literature and journalism will cease to be a means of money-making and living at the cost of others. But is there anyone who knows literature and journalism from within and who does not ardently desire that literature should at last be able to free itself from those who formerly protected it and who now exploit it, and from the multitude which, with rare exceptions, pays it in proportion to its mediocrity or to the ease with which it adapts itself to the bad taste of the greater number. Letters and science will only take their proper place in the work of human development when, freed from all mercenary bondage, they will be exclusively cultivated by those that love them and for those that love them. Literature, science, and art must be cultivated by free men. Only on this condition will they succeed in emancipating themselves from the yoke of the state, of capital, and of the bourgeois mediocrity which stifles them. What means has the scientist of today to make researches that interest him? Should he ask help of the state, which can only be given to one candidate in a hundred, and which none may obtain who does not ostensibly promise to keep to the beaten track? Let us remember how the Institute of France censured Darwin, how the Academy of St. Petersburg treated Mendeleev with contempt, and how the Royal Society of London refused to publish Jules' paper in which he determined the mechanical equivalent of heat, finding it 
unscientific. It is why all great researches, all discoveries revolutionizing science, have been made outside academies and universities, either by men rich enough to remain independent, like Darwin and Lyle, or by men who undermined their health by working in poverty and often in great straits, losing no end of time for want of a laboratory, and unable to procure the instruments or books necessary to continue their researches, but persevering against hope, and often dying before they had reached the end in view. Their name is Legion. Altogether, the system of help granted by the state is so bad that science has always endeavored to emancipate itself from it. For this very reason, there are thousands of learned societies organized and maintained by volunteers in Europe and America, some having developed to such a degree that all the resources of subvention societies and the wealth of millionaires would not buy their treasures. No governmental institution is as rich as the Zoological Society of London, which is supported by voluntary contributions. It does not buy the animals which in thousands people its gardens. They are sent by other societies and by collectors of the entire world. The Zoological Society of Bombay will send an elephant as a gift. Another time, a hippopotamus or a rhinoceros is offered by Egyptian naturalists. And these magnificent presents are pouring in every day, arriving from all quarters of the globe. Birds, reptiles, collections of insects, etc. These consignments often comprise animals that could not be bought for all the gold in the world. Thus, a traveler who has captured an animal at life's peril, and now loves it as it would love a child, will give it to the society because he is sure it will be cared for. The entrance fee paid by visitors, and they are numberless, suffices for the maintenance of that immense institution. What is defective in the Zoological Society of London, and in other kindred societies, is that the member's fee cannot be paid in work, that the keepers and numerous employees of this large institution are not recognized as members of the society, while many have no other incentive to joining the society than to put the Kabbalistic letters FZS, fellow of the Zoological Society, on their cards. In a word, what is needed is a more perfect cooperation. We may say the same about inventors that we have said of scientists. Who does not know what sufferings nearly all great inventions that have come to light have caused? Sleepless nights, families deprived of bread, want of tools and materials for experiments, is the history of nearly all those who have enriched industry with inventions, which are the truly legitimate pride of our civilization. But what are we to do to alter conditions that everybody is convinced are bad? Patents have been tried, and we know with what results. The inventor sells his patent for a few shillings, and the man who has only lent the capital pockets the often enormous profits resulting from the invention. Besides, patents isolate the inventor. They compel him to keep secret his researches, which therefore end in failure, whereas the simplest suggestion, coming from a brain less absorbed in the fundamental idea, sometimes suffices to fertilize the invention and make it practical. Like all state control, Patents hamper the progress of industry. Thought being incapable of being patented, patents are a crying injustice in theory, and in practice they result in one of the great obstacles to the rapid development of invention. What is needed to promote the spirit of invention is, first of all, the awakening of thought, the boldness of conception, which our entire education causes to languish. It is the spreading of a scientific education, 
which would increase the number of inquirers a hundredfold. It is faith that humanity is going to take a step forward because it is enthusiasm, the hope of doing good, that has inspired all the great inventors. The social revolution alone can give this impulse to thought, this boldness, this knowledge, this conviction of working for all. Then we shall have vast institutes supplied with motor power and tools of all sorts, immense industrial laboratories open to all inquirers, where men will be able to work out their dreams after having acquitted themselves of their duty toward society, where they will spend their five or six hours of leisure, where they will make their experiments, where they will find other comrades, experts in other branches of industry, likewise coming to study some difficult problem and therefore able to help and enlighten each other, the encounter of their ideas and experience causing the longed-for solution to be found. And yet, again, this is no dream. Solonoi Gorodok in Petersburg has already partially realized it as regards technical matters. It is a factory well-furnished with tools and free to all. Tools and motor power are supplied gratis. Only metals and wood are charged for at cost price. Unfortunately, workmen only go there at night when worn out by ten hours' labor in the workshop. Moreover, they carefully hide their inventions from each other as they are hampered by patents and capitalism, that bane of present society, that stumbling block in the path of intellectual and moral progress. And what about art? From all sides we hear lamentations about the decadence of art. We are, indeed, far behind the great masters of the Renaissance. The technicalities of art have recently made great progress. Thousands of people gifted with a certain amount of talent cultivate every branch. But art seems to fly from civilization. Technicalities make headway, but inspiration frequents artists' studios less than ever. Where, indeed, should it come from? Only a grand idea can inspire art. Art is, in our ideal, synonymous with creation. It must look ahead. But save a few rare, very rare exceptions, the professional artist remains too philistine to perceive new horizons. Moreover, this inspiration cannot come from books. It must be drawn from life, and present society cannot arouse it. Raphael and Murio painted at a time when the search of a new ideal could adapt itself to old religious traditions. They painted to decorate great churches, which represented the pious work of several generations. The basilica, with its mysterious aspect, its grandeur, was connected with the life itself of the city and could inspire a painter. He worked for a popular monument. He spoke to his fellow citizens, and in return he received inspiration. He appealed to the multitude in the same way as did the nave, the pillars, the stained windows, the statues, and the carved doors. Nowadays, the greatest honor a painter can aspire to is to see his canvas, framed in gilded wood, hung in a museum, a sort of old curiosity shop, where you see, as in Prado, Murillo's ascension next to a beggar of Velasquez and the dogs of Philip II. Poor Velasquez, and poor Murillo, poor Greek statues which lived in the Acropolis of their cities and are now stifled beneath the red cloth hangings of the Louvre. When a Greek sculptor chiseled his marble, he endeavored to express the spirit and heart of the city. All its passions, all its traditions of glory, were to live again in the work. But today, the united city has ceased to exist. There is no more communion of ideas. 
The town is a chance agglomeration of people who do not know one another, who have no common interest, save that of enriching themselves at the expense of one another. The fatherland does not exist. What fatherland can the international banker and the rag picker have in common? Only when the cities, territories, nations, or groups of nations will have renewed their harmonious life will art be able to draw its inspiration from ideals held in common. Then will the architect conceive the city's monument which will no longer be a temple, a prison, or a fortress. Then will the painter, the sculptor, the carver, the ornamental worker know where to put their canvases, their statues, and their decorations, deriving their power of execution from the same vital source, and gloriously marching all together towards the future. But till then, art can only vegetate. The best canvases of modern artists are those that represent nature, villages, valleys, the sea with its danger, the mountain with its splendors. But how can the painter express the poetry of work in the fields if he has only contemplated it, imagined it, if he has never delighted in it himself? If he only knows it as a bird of passage knows the country he soars over on his migrations? If, in the vigor of early youth, he has not followed the plow at dawn and enjoyed mowing grass with a large swath of the scythe next to hardy haymakers vying in energy with lively young girls who fill the air with their songs? The love of the soil and of what grows on it is not acquired by sketching with a paintbrush. It is only in its service, and without loving it, how to paint it. This is why all the best painters have produced in this direction is still so imperfect, not true to life, nearly always merely sentimental. There is no strength in it. You must have seen a sunset when returning from work. You must have been a peasant among peasants to keep the splendor of it in your eye. You must have been at sea with fishermen at all hours of the day and night, have fished yourself, struggled with the waves, faced the storm, and after rough work experienced the joy of hauling a heavy net, or the disappointment of seeing it empty, to understand the poetry of fishing. You must have spent time in a factory, known the fatigues and the joys of creative work, forged metals by vivid light of a blast furnace, have felt the life in a machine to understand the power of man and to express it in a work of art. You must, in fact, be permeated with popular feelings to describe them. Besides, the works of future artists who will have lived the life of the people, like the great artists of the past, will not be destined for sale. They will be an integrant part of a living whole that would not be complete without them, any more than they would be complete without it. Men will go to the artist's own city to gaze at his work, and the spirited and serene beauty of such creations will produce its beneficial effect on heart and mind. Art, in order to develop, must be bound up with industry by a thousand intermediate degrees blended, so to say, as Ruskin and the great socialist poet Morris have proved so often and so well. Everything that surrounds man, in the street, in the interior and exterior of public monuments, must be of a pure artistic form but this will only be capable of realization in a society in which all enjoy comfort and leisure. Then we shall see art associations, in which each can find room for his capacity, for art cannot dispense with an infinity of purely manual and technical supplementary works. These artistic associations will undertake to embellish the houses of their members, as those kind volunteers, the young painters of Edinburgh, 
did in decorating the walls and ceilings of the great hospital for the poor in their city. A painter or sculptor who has produced a work of personal feeling will offer it to the woman he loves or to a friend. Executed for love's sake, will his work, inspired by love, be inferior to the art that today satisfies the vanity of the Philistine because it has cost much money? The same will be done as regards all pleasure not comprised in the necessaries of life. He who wishes for a grand piano will enter the association of musical instrument makers, and by giving the association part of his half-day's leisure, he will soon possess the piano of his dreams. If he is passionately fond of astronomical studies, he will join the association of astronomers, with its philosophers, its observers, its calculators, with its artists in astronomical instruments, its scientists and amateurs, and he will have the telescope he desires by taking his share of the associated work, for it is especially the rough work that is needed in an astronomical observatory. Bricklayers, carpenters, founders, mechanics work, the last touch being given to the instrument of precision by the artist. In short, five or seven hours a day which each will have at his disposal, after having consecrated several hours to the production of necessities, will amply suffice to satisfy all longings for luxury, however varied. Thousands of associations would undertake to supply them. What is now the privilege of an insignificant minority would be accessible to all. Luxury, ceasing to be a foolish and ostentatious display of the bourgeois class, would become an artistic pleasure. Everyone would be the happier for it. In collective work, performed with a light heart to attain a desired end, a book, a work of art, or an object of luxury, each will find an incentive and the necessary relaxation that makes life pleasant. In working to put an end to the division between master and slave, We work for the happiness of both, for the happiness of humanity.